Okay, take a seat. And let's pray real quick. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word, for this amazing gift of revelation that you have given to us. There is just so much that you want us to know from it. May you bless our time together today and help us to have ears to hear and hearts that are open to the counsel that would come from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if you got to be here last week, we got to hear from Alexis. And um, she talked about David's extended time in the wilderness and the temptations that came along with that. And she shared an illustration of God's grace being like the many shades of the color blue. And I found myself thinking about that illustration a lot and being just really thankful for all the different expressions of God's grace in my life and the diversity of the ways that that's shown in different seasons. So with David last week, we saw God's grace that kept David from sinning. We saw his restraining grace. And I know for myself that I can testify that God has restrained me from sin many a times. And one of the ways that I think about this is my tongue. Um, that God often in his grace restrains my words. The words are on the tip of my tongue. Left to my own devices, they would be spewed on the world around me. And God in his grace, even in that moment, as the thought is coming to my head, can intervene, convict me, help me to change my tone, to use self-control, to not say something, to change the way I'm going to say something. And I'm so thankful for this because I think of my many different relationships, of every relationship that I have that left to my own devices, I would spew more destructive, more hateful words. There is this song that I love. It's called um, Black Roses. And it's talking about this, about someone kind of speaking these unrestrained words into your life. And it says, now you only bring me black roses. When they crumble into dust, when they are held, now you only bring me black roses. And the song is like really haunting and piercing. And I think that's how a lot of times how words can be. So I'm so thankful that God in his grace restrains that sin. And I wish that I could sit here and say that in Christ, now my words and my sin are always restrained. (laughs) But if you know me at all, you know that that's not true. You have heard, you have felt, you have seen my unrestrained sin. And this week, we dive right into David's unrestrained sin. We're thankful for God's restraining grace for him last week, that he kept him from killing Saul. But we kind of have a reality check as well here, that we see that we are not always restrained. We open up chapter 7 with the words, Then David said in his heart. And this should kind of be triggering our caution lights. Because David had been praised earlier for being a man after God's own heart. But here it says that he's taking counsel in his own heart. And we know from Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. 
Who can understand it? So when we hear that David is taking counsel in his own heart, we should be very concerned. David in his heart says, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. So David, in all his time in the wilderness, he's clung to, he's claimed, he's believed the promises of God. But here now, one chapter later, we see him fearing and we see him doubting. Just like us so often, just like me so often. One moment, victoriously believing, the next moment, doubting. And I actually think that Saul got in his head a bit in their last interaction. Saul was, uh, and he were interacting, and, and Saul was calling him, oh, son, oh, son, yes, come back with me, come back with me, and I won't attack you anymore. And I think Saul got in his head. And I know um, the false kindness messed with them. And I know for myself that I can get in my head sometimes and that I can listen to the counsel of my heart sometimes. And so I just want to warn us that if you're in your own head and in your own heart, you are susceptible to not believing the promises of God. Your own head and your own heart are dangerous places to be. Should David have feared that Saul would kill him? No, he had the promise of God that he would be king and that God would protect him. But in this moment, he fears and he trusts his fear more than he trusts his God. Then in his fear, he does not pray. He does not seek the counsel of God. He flees. Now, why would the Philistines have let him in, have welcomed him? That's always one of those, like, this has been your great enemy. Why would you let him in? And I think the thinking is probably that Akish thought, if, they don't, if Israel doesn't have David, they'll be greatly weakened. So if David, if there's any chance that David wants to come to our side, we got to take it. So David goes to the Philistines. And I think it's so interesting because this is very true in my own life. Once David is with the Philistines, we see that his one bad choice often leads to two. Um, He's among the Philistines, and he needs to prove his value. And he also needs to provide for all of these people that are with him. So he starts doing these raids. And thankfully, he does not actually attack Israel. He starts attacking, attacking the surrounding enemies of Israel, But following his own counsel has put him into this position that he feels like he has to be deceptive and he has to lie. So he lies to Akish and says he is raiding the Israelites. And as one bad choice often leads to two, it often leads to three. Because we see, once again, he has gotten himself into this very precarious situation. Akish now enlists him to go up and directly fight against the Israelites. Akish trusts David and thinks that since David has been raiding his own people, there's no way that he can go back to the Israelites. 
And so he wants him to go and fight with him and to help to take down the Israelites once and for all. And he wants David to be his personal bodyguard. So we end this scene thinking, what is David thinking? What is David going to do? And we have not seen the name of God a single time since David interacted with Saul. David interacts with Saul, and then we don't see the name of God. So we see David wandering, doing his own thing. We end this scene wondering the much bigger question. What is God thinking? And what is God going to do? And as our text has us going back and forth, David, Saul, David, Saul, we now just switch back to Saul. And Saul knows the Philistines are gathering for war. But this time, they seem much more serious. In the past, I don't even remember, they just more suggested like two champions. Like, you send your champion, I'll send my champion, and our two champions will fight. That, they're not suggesting that this time. They're not saying, let's just have one people fight. They're gathering for an all-out attack. And it's not just one of the lords of the Philistines. They have all come together. They're all gathered for battle to come and fight against Saul. Saul is in great distress. The text says he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. We are told that he inquires of the Lord, but he gets no answer. But from our text earlier, we know that Saul knows the exact protocols that God has set out for him to follow, and he would not obey. He was going to take things into his own hands. He was going to do things in his own timing, in his own might, in his own strength to get the result he wanted. And so we, we come here wondering, what is Saul going to do? Is he going to wait? Or is he once again going to disobey, do things his way, and take things into his own hands? And of course, what does Saul do? Saul takes things into his own hands and does it his way. And he dresses up and sneaks out by night, which is almost never a good sign in Scripture when it's happening at night. And then we have this famous account with, with the witch of Endor. And this is like one of those crazy stories that you're like, what do we make of this? Um, and I think, uh, let, let's start with a quote by Baldwin. And it says, this incident does not tell us anything about the veracity of claims to consult the dead on the part of mediums. Because the indications are that this was an extraordinary event for her and a frightening one because she was not in control. So whatever we determine does happen here, we do not have to think or believe that, it, that it's normative and that it could be repeated today by a medium. Dr. Constable would say that mediums and spiritists do not have access to the dead, but communicate with evil spirits posing as people who have died. That is why these spirits are called lying spirits in 1 Kings 22, 22. So kind of our option as we come to this text is that there's an evil spirit posing as Samuel 
and interacting with the medium and with Saul. Or we have another option to say that this is a unique encounter, that this is a miracle, that this is God intervening in this situation and using this situation and and revealing Samuel. Not that the medium necessarily is the one who brings up Samuel, but that God shows Samuel in this situation. And we, we do see this happen in another place. If you think of the transfiguration story, you can think of live people seeing a prophet after death. You have uh, Jesus and P- or James and Peter and John see Moses and Elijah when they're with Jesus at the transfiguration. And we see here that this, the description of, of Samuel is interesting. Um, it says he looks like a divine being to her, but he still looks old. It's always interesting. We'll, we'll have to wait till we get to heaven to see what that means. <laughs> um, but it is interesting. And I think, uh, I would say that because of the words of Samuel, that they, they ring true as true pro- prophecy and as true words, that it's best to consider the act of Saul visiting the medium. And then do you see what he does? He promises her safety in the name of the Lord. This is such an act of rebellion on Saul's part. It's a culmination of sin. This act of Saul in some way is so strong that it actually brings about God working to allow Saul to receive from Samuel a word post-death to pronounce his judgment. Saul is told he will die tomorrow. We've talked about in past weeks that God never delivers judgment until sin is complete. So what do we see here? Saul's sin is complete. And judgment will come. So let's look for just a second at why going to a medium would be wrong. Um, First, all things associated with the occult are strictly forbidden. There's numerous passages, but I'll read one real quick. Deuteronomy 19, 9 through 12 reads, When you come into the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. And then it's going to give a list of things, and they're all kind of equal. So the first one should scare us that, that it's equal with this. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his sons or his daughters as an offering, anyone who practices divination, a soothsayer or an augur, that is an enchanter, one who looks for and uses omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a wizard or a necromancer. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominable practices, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So initially as I'm studying this text, in my head I'm thinking, yeah, this is bad. Of course this is bad. But it actually wasn't until I read an article by John Piper that I kind of realized why it was so bad and how it was so bad and kind of actually how bad it was. So Piper says a bunch of things, and I'm going to read some of them. But he says, the goal of these things listed is to obtain knowledge which is ordinarily hidden. And the means of attaining it is through dealing with the spirit world or with mysterious supernatural forces. He goes on to explain, 
The occult is simply a continuation of the ancient satanic deception in Genesis 3-5. Go beyond what God has provided and appointed, and you shall become like God. All forms of the occult present us with a similar temptation. Will we act like humble children of God and submit to God's wisdom in limiting our knowledge and our power? Or will we, like Adam and Eve, hanker for the fruit that can make us wise and the power that belongs to God? So Leviticus 26 says, If a person turns to mediums and wizards, playing the harlot after them, I will set my face against that person. So consulting mediums is like committing adultery against God. And Piper's culminating statement is so strong. Jesus Christ is the husband of the church. He is God's fullest revelation. All that we need to know and all the power which is good for us to have comes through him and his word. So this would include kind of the more innocent things. He, he actually uh, akins it to like peeking at a playboy if you like peek at your fortune. Um, you Fortune cookies, horoscopes, astrology, all of those things would fit into this category of kind of just wanting a little bit of information, just wanting a little bit of knowing how the day might fall out. And, and scripture would say, that's adultery against your God. God has not given for you to know that. Now then, I, of course, have looked at my horoscope before. And, um, and I shouldn't say, of course. That's an awful way to say that. I, of course, have sinned. Uh, I have looked at my horoscope. Uh, it, you know, I remember in high school, like, thinking that that was, like, a fun thing to look at at the back of the magazine. So I think there was some, like, real repentance. God, I didn't even view that as adultery against you. And yet that was me wanting information that you had not provided. And so saying, or, you know, and I always thought, like, if I call that commercial or that person on the TV, um, would they get anything right about me? Like, would they know information about me? Um, but this is not for me. This curiosity is not to be indulged. This curiosity, this is information that is restricted to me. Um, Jesus is my revelation. The word, the Bible, these are my revelation. And I will not adulterously seek information elsewhere. So we leave Saul knowing that his hours are numbered. And we pick back up with David. And he is in a very precarious situation too. He is lined up with the Philistines to go to battle against Israel. Now we really don't know what David's intentions are here. Um, He has shown that he will lie to Achish. And he's shown that he has, is not going to attack the Israelites. So I think it's better to probably think that David would not have actually gone up and fought against Saul and fought against Jonathan and fought against the people of God. But he was in a really bad situation. He was going to be in the middle of the enemy in a lot of trouble, um, kind of of his own making. And uh, David got himself into this very precarious situation. And yet, what do we see? The Lord provides a way out. David's one choice, one bad choice, became two bad choices, became three bad choices. And yet God, in his many colors of grace, provides a way out. 
when we back ourselves into a corner, God comes and calls us out. And he can do that in the small things, but then he also does that ultimately when we look to Jesus, when we're in the ultimately backed in the corner of our sin, and he sends Christ to rescue us and call us out of the corner and to rescue us. Um, here, David's way out is that he is sent away by the Philistine lords. And we breathe this sigh of relief, and we think, yay, things are good now. Um, but then David gets home, and his village is burned with fire. Everyone has been taken captive. The people who are with him are considering stoning him. It says they raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength. The people were bitter in soul. This section has had us going back and forth between David and Saul to help us to see the differences. And in this, we can see a major difference. They're both truly desperate. They're both in really bad situations. Saul is the people's king, so he represents human might and strength. And Saul, in his weakness, what do you see him? He's taking comfort from the medium and from the fattened calf and from the, from the uh, wine. Contrast that with David. David is also greatly distressed, but he strengthens himself in the Lord. This section at the beginning of chapter 30 to me is just beautifully amazing because we see that, God, that David is weeping right along all, aside, alongside these people. He is weeping until he has no more strength. His wives have been taken, his home has been burned, and now the people are turning against him. You can almost picture him just kind of like curled up in a little ball. He is at a low low point. He feels that all is lost. David has nothing now, except David has God. And I think the powerful life-changing truth here that strengthens David is that God is enough. If I have nothing I still have everything. Psalm 6, uh, we see a psalm that kind of shows out this strengthening of David. Um, He says, I am languishing. My bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. I, I drench my couch with my weeping. Every night I flood my bed with tears. Oh, Lord, how long? Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Psalm 16 says, O God, in you I take refuge. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from me, from you. Psalm 17, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord, my strength. So I would tell you this book of 1 Samuel has been really hard for David. His life has been very hard. 
but his wife would testify to us over and over that even if all seems lost, I still have God. Even if my family's gone, all my enemies are coming against me, the people are going to kill me. Even then, I still have God. And I have found him to be enough. He sees me. He hears me. He loves me. He often makes me wait. And I don't understand everything. And there are hard paths that I've had to walk. But he is with me. And in the Lord, when there is no strength, there is strength to be found. When I have no strength, in him I can be strengthened. And I think maybe even better than the comfort that I have God is that Christ has me. So David seeks God. He hears from God. And God redeems. And God works good. He tells him to pursue and go. And he rescues all of the women and all of the children. And he takes this great spoil. And the people call it David's spoil. Because as the leader, it was his right to get to choose what was done with it. So he could have taken half of it for himself and then just left the other people who went to battle to split the rest. But that is not what David does. David does something different. And he, help, he helps us to look forward, forward to his greater son, Jesus, who is coming. David recognizes that all is given by the Lord, their life, the battle, and the spoil. And instead of grasping it and trying to hold on to it for himself, he gives it freely. And he gives to those, even to those who were too exhausted to fight for it themselves. So if we look back to chapter 8, we see in Samuel this warning against this king that the people were asking for. And it says, the king that you ask for would take, take, take. The king God would provide would give, give, give. The foreshadowing of the greater son here, that Jesus would go to battle for us for those who didn't earn it, that he would go to the cross. And then what is earned there, the forgiveness, the righteousness, the power, the holiness, he would freely share. So our last picture of David in 1 Samuel is him victoriously defeating the Amalekites, whom Saul was already to have defeated, him rescuing his people, and then him graciously sharing his reward. So our last view of David is him pointing to his greater son, Jesus. We end with David thinking of Jesus. Our last picture of Saul will not be as comforting. Saul has gone to battle as foretold, and he has died. And his three sons and the armor bearer. Now, I don't know if you're, if you're like me. I, I, I really like Jonathan. And so I'm like, why did Jonathan have to die? Um, and even here, we can say some wonderful, great things about Jonathan. He was so loyal, and he continued to honor his father, despite some really good reasons to me that he wouldn't. And he stays loyal to the Lord's anointed. 
despite some really good reasons that I can come up with in my own head and in my own heart for why he shouldn't. He stays loyal, even to the point of death. But one of the commentators points out that Jonathan is not the emphasis. So we're not, to, we're not really, next chapter actually, when we open up for 2 Samuel, we'll get to celebrate Jonathan. But here, the emphasis is Saul. And we are supposed to feel how tragic his end is. His end is, is very, very tragic and very sad. Both David and Saul are sinners. They both get themselves into really desperate situations. But there is a major difference between them. God is with and for David all the days of his life. Everything that happens to God, even his rebellion, even his sin, God redeems and works for good. And David looks to God. David looks to God for his salvation and for his strength. Saul, he's under the sovereignty of God, and he's used as a tool of God. He is the Lord's anointed, but he does not look to God for his salvation or his strength. He looks to himself. Saul is human might and human strength. And where do those end? This last chapter pictures, if you will trust in yourself, if you will trust in human might and human strength, this will be the end. Death and despair. David is human dependence and weakness, but a weakness that looks to God. And in the end, God saves and God redeems. So I would have us end with that tension, that tension between God bringing victory human dependence on God, ending victoriously, ultimately, and human might, ending in death and despair. There's a, in Philippians 3, 8, it says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. If all you have today is Christ, you have enough. You have enough. And in fact, you have everything. Apart from Christ, there is judgment and death. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are not promised that we will get to know everything and understand everything or have an easy or sin-free life. But we are promised that you are with us, that you'll never forsake us, and that is enough. And it's more than enough. Your son had to suffer and die to bring that about for us. And he gives that to us freely when we could not earn it ourselves. 
Help us today to strengthen ourselves in you alone and trust in your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.